The New World Order by H.G. Wells Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Chapter 1 The End of an Age In this small book, I want to set down as compactly, clearly, and usefully as possible the gist of what I have learnt about war and peace in the course of my life. I'm not going to write peace propaganda here. I'm going to strip down certain general ideas and realities of primary importance to their framework, and so prepare a nucleus of useful knowledge for those who have to go on with this business of making a world peace. I'm not going to persuade people to say, yes, yes, for a world peace. Already we have had far too much abolition of war by making declarations and signing resolutions. Everybody wants peace, or pretends to want peace, and there is no need to add even a sentence more to the vast volume of such ineffective stuff. I am simply attempting to state the things we must do and the price we must pay for world peace if we really intend to achieve it. Until the Great War, the First World War, I did not bother very much about war and peace. Since then, I have almost specialized upon this problem. It is not very easy to recall former states of mind out of which, day by day and year by year, one has grown, but I think that in the decades before 1914, not only I, but most of my generation, in the British Empire, America, France, and indeed throughout most of the civilized world, thought that war was dying out. So it seemed to us. It was an agreeable and therefore a readily acceptable idea. We imagined the Franco-German War of 1870 and 71, and the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 and 78, were the final conflicts between great powers. That now there was a balance of power sufficiently stable to make further major warfare impracticable. A triple alliance faced a dual alliance, and neither had much reason for attacking the other. We believed war was shrinking to mere expeditionary affairs on the outskirts of our civilization, a sort of frontier police business. Habits of tolerant intercourse, it seemed, were being strengthened every year that the peace of the powers remained unbroken. There was indeed a mild armament race going on, mild by our present standards of equipment. The armament industry was a growing and enterprising one, But we did not see the full implication of that. We preferred to believe that the increasing general good sense would be strong enough to prevent these multiplying guns from actually going off and hitting anything. And we smiled indulgently at uniforms and parades and army maneuvers. They were the time-honored toys and regalia of kings and emperors. They were part of the display side of life and would never get to actual destruction and killing. I do not think that exaggerates the easy complacency of, let us say, 1895, 45 years ago. It was a complacency that lasted with most of us up to 1914. In 1914, hardly anyone in Europe or America below the age of 50 had seen anything of war in his own country. The world before 1900 seemed to be drifting steadily towards a tacit but practical unification. One could travel without a passport over the larger part of Europe. The Postal Union delivered one's letters uncensored and safely from Chile to China. Money, based essentially on gold, fluctuated only very slightly, and the sprawling British Empire still maintained a tradition of free trade, equal treatment, and open-handedness to all comers round about the planet. In the United States, you could go for days and never see a military uniform. Compared with today, that was, upon the surface at any rate, an age of easygoing, safety, and good humor, particularly for the North Americans and the Europeans. But apart from that steady, ominous growth of the armament industry, there were other and deeper forces at work that were preparing trouble. The foreign offices of the various sovereign states had not forgotten the competitive traditions of the 18th century. The admirals and generals were contemplating with something between hostility and fascination. The hunger weapons, the steel industry was gently pressing into their hands. Germany did not share the self-complacency of the English-speaking world. She wanted a place in the sun, 
there was increasing friction about the partition of the raw material regions of Africa. The British suffered from chronic Russophobia with regard to their vast portions in the East and set themselves to nurse Japan into a modernized imperialist power. And also, they remembered Majuba. The United States were irritated by the disorder of Cuba and felt that the weak, extended Spanish possessions would be all the better for a change of management. So the game of power politics went on. But it went on upon the margins of the prevailing peace. There were several wars and changes of boundaries, but they involved no fundamental disturbance of the general civilized life. They did not seem to threaten its broadening tolerations and understandings in any fundamental fashion. Economic stresses and social trouble stirred and muttered beneath the orderly surfaces of political life, but threatened no convulsion. The idea of altogether eliminating war, of clearing what was left of it away, was in the air, but it was free from any sense of urgency. The Hague Tribunal was established and there was a steady dissemination of the conceptions of arbitration and international law. It really seemed to many that the peoples of the earth were settling down in their various territories to a litigious rather than a belligerent order. If there was much social injustice, it was being mitigated more and more by a quickening sense of social decency. Inquisitiveness conducted itself with decorum, and public spiritedness was in fashion. Some of it was quite honest public spiritedness. In those days, and they are hardly more than half a lifetime behind us, no one thought of any sort of world administration. That patchwork of great powers and small powers seemed the most reasonable and practicable method of running the business of mankind. Communications were far too difficult for any sort of centralized world controls. Around the world in 80 days, when it was published 70 years ago, seemed an extravagant fantasy. It was a world without telephone or radio, with nothing swifter than a railway train or more destructive than the earlier types of H.E. Shell. They were marvels. It was far more convenient to administer that world of the balance of power in separate national areas and since there were such limited facilities for peoples to get at one another and do each other mischiefs, there seemed no harm in ardent patriotism and the complete independence of separate sovereign states. Economic life was largely directed by irresponsible private business and private finance, which, because of their private ownership, were able to spread out their unifying transactions in a network that paid little attention to frontiers and national racial or religious sentimentality. Business was much more of a world commonwealth than the political organizations. There were many people, especially in America, who imagined that business might ultimately unify the world and governments sink into subordination to its network. Nowadays, we can be wise after the event and we can see that below this fair surface of things, disruptive forces were steadily gathering strength. But these disruptive forces played a comparatively small role in the world spectacle of half a century ago, when the ideas of that older generation which still dominates our political life and the political education of its successors were formed. It is from the conflict of those balance of power and private enterprise ideas, half a century old, that one of the main stresses of our time arises. These ideas worked fairly well in their period, and it is still with extreme reluctance that our rulers, teachers, politicians face the necessity for a profound mental adaptation of their views, methods, and interpretations to these disruptive forces that once seemed so negligible and which are now shattering their old order completely. It was because of this belief in a growing goodwill among nations, because of the general satisfaction with things as they were, that the German declarations of war in 1914 aroused such a storm of indignation throughout the entire comfortable world. It was felt that the German Kaiser had broken the tranquility of the World Club, wantonly and needlessly. The war was fought against the Hohenzollerns. They were to be expelled from the club, certain punitive fines were to be paid, and all would be well. That was the British idea of 1914. This out-of-date war business was then to be cleared up once and for all by a mutual guarantee by all the more respectable members of the club, 
through a league of nations. There was no apprehension of any deeper operating causes in that great convulsion on the part of the worthy elder statesman who made the peace. And so Versailles and its codicils. For 20 years, the disruptive forces have gone on growing beneath the surface of that genteel and shallow settlement. In 20 years, there has been no resolute attack upon the riddles with which their growth confronts us. For all that period of the League of Nations has been the opiate of liberal thought in the world. Today there is a war to get rid of Adolf Hitler, who has now taken the part of the Hohenzollerns in the drama. He too has outraged the club rules, and he too is to be expelled. The war, the Chamberlain-Hitler War, is being waged so far by the British Empire in quite the old spirit. It has learnt nothing and forgotten nothing. There is the same resolute disregard of any more fundamental problem. Still, the minds of our comfortable and influential ruling class people refuse to accept the plain intimation that their time is over, that the balance of power and uncontrolled business methods cannot continue, and that Hitler, like the Hohenzollerns, is a mere offensive postule on the face of a deeply ailing world. To get rid of him and his Nazis will be no more a cure for the world's ills than scraping with heel measles. The disease will manifest itself in some new eruption. It is the system of nationalist individualism and uncoordinated enterprise that is the world's disease. It is the whole system that has to go and has to be reconditioned down to its foundations or replaced. It cannot hope to muddle through amiably, wastefully, and dangerously a second time. World peace means all that much revolution. More and more of us begin to realize that it cannot mean less. The first thing, therefore, that has to be done in thinking out the primary problems of world peace is to realize this, that we are living in the end of a definite period of history, the period of the sovereign states. As we used to say in the 80s with ever-increasing truth, we are in an age of transition. Now we get some measure of the acuteness of the transition. It is a phase of human life which may lead, as I am trying to show, either to a new way of living for our species or else to a longer or briefer degringolade of violence, misery, destruction, death, and the extinction of mankind. These are not rhetorical phrases I am using here. I mean exactly what I say, the disastrous extinction of mankind. That is the issue before us. It is no small affair of parlor politics we have to consider. As I write, in the moment, thousands of people are being killed, wounded, hunted, tormented, ill-treated, delivered up to the most intolerable and hopeless anxiety, and destroyed morally and mentally. And there is nothing in sight at present to arrest this spreading process and prevent its reaching you and yours. It is coming for you and yours now at a great pace. Plainly, in so far as we are rational, foreseeing creatures, there is nothing for any of us now but to make this world peace problem the ruling interest and direction of our lives. If we run away from it, it will pursue and get us. We have to face it. We have to solve it or be destroyed by it. It is as urgent and comprehensive as that. Chapter 2 Open Conference before we examine what I've called so far the disruptive forces in the current social order, let me underline one primary necessity for the most outspoken free discussion of the battling organizations and the crumbling institutions amidst which we lead our present uncomfortable and precarious lives. There must be no protection for leaders and organizations from the most searching criticism and the plea that our country is or may be at war or on any pretense. We must talk openly, widely, and plainly. The war is incidental. The need for revolutionary reconstruction is fundamental. None of us are clear as yet upon some of the most vital questions before us. We are not lucid enough in our own minds to be ambiguous, and a mumbling tactfulness and indirect half-statements made with an eye upon some censor will confuse our thoughts and the thoughts of those with whom we desire understanding, to the complete sterilization and defeat of every reconstructive effort. 
We want to talk and tell exactly what our ideas and feelings are, not only to our fellow citizens, but to our allies, to neutrals, and above all, to the people who are marshaled in arms against us. We want to get the same sincerity from them, because until we have worked out a common basis of ideas with them, peace will only be an uncertain equilibrium while fresh antagonisms develop. Concurrently with this war, we need a great debate. We want every possible person in the world to take part in that debate. It is something much more important than the actual warfare. It is intolerable to think of this storm of universal distress leading up to nothing but some conference of diplomatists out of touch with the world, with secret sessions, ambiguous understandings. Not twice, surely, can that occur. And yet, what is going to prevent its recurring? It is quite easy to define the reasonable limits of censorship in a belligerent country. It is manifest that the publication of any information likely to be of the slightest use to an enemy must be drastically anticipated and suppressed. Not only direct information, for example, but intimations and careless betrayals about the position and movements of ships, troops, camps. Depots of munitions, food supplies, and false reports of defeats and victories and coming shortages. Anything that may lead to blind panic and hysteria, and so forth and so on. But the matter takes on a different aspect altogether when it comes to statements and suggestions that may affect public opinion in one's own country or abroad, and which may help us towards wholesome and corrective political action. One of the more unpleasant aspects of a state of war under modern conditions is the appearance of a swarm of individuals, too clever by half in positions of authority, excited, conceited, prepared to lie, distort, and generally humbug people into states of acquiescence, resistance, and indignation, vindictiveness, doubt, and mental confusion, states of mind supposed to be conductive to a final military victory. These people love to twist and censor facts. It gives them a feeling of power. If they cannot create, they can at least prevent and conceal. Particularly, they poke themselves in between us and the people with whom we are at war to distort any possible reconciliation. They sit, filled with the wine of their transitory powers, aloof from the fatigues and dangers of conflict, pulling imaginary strings in people's minds. In Germany, popular thought is supposed to be under the control of Herr de Goebbels. In Great Britain, we writers have been invited to place ourselves at the disposal of some ministry of information. That is to say, at the disposal of hitherto obscure and unrepresentative individuals, and write under its advice. Officials from the British Council and the Conservative Party headquarters appear in key positions in this ministry of information. That curious and little-advertised organization I have just mentioned, the creation I am told of Lord Lloyd, that British council sends emissaries abroad, writers, well-dressed women, and other cultural personages to lecture, charm, and win over foreign appreciation for British characteristics, for British scenery, British political virtues, and so forth. Somehow this is supposed to help something or other. Quietly, unobtrusively, this has gone on. Maybe these sample British give unauthorized assurances, but probably they do little positive harm. But they ought not to be employed at all. Any government propaganda is contrary to the essential spirit of democracy. The expression of opinion and collective thought should be outside the range of government activities altogether. It should be the work of free individuals whose prominence is dependent upon the response and support of the general mind. But here I have to make amends to Lord Lloyd. I was led to believe that the British Council was responsible for Mr. Teeling, the author of Crisis for Christianity, and I say as much in the fate of Homo sapiens. I now unsay it. Mr. Teeling, I gather, was sent out upon his journeys by a Catholic newspaper. The British Council was entirely innocent of him. It is not only that the ministries of information and propaganda do their level best to divert the limited gifts and energies of such writers, lecturers, and talkers as we possess, to the production of disingenuous muck that will muddle the public mind and mislead the inquiring foreigner, but that they show a marked disposition to stifle any free and independent utterances. 
that might seem to travel their own profound and secret plans for the salvation of mankind. Everywhere now, it is difficult to get adequate far-reaching publicity for outspoken discussion of the way the world is going and the political, economic, and social forces that carry us along. This is not so much due to deliberate suppression as to the general disorder into which human affairs are dissolving. There is indeed in the Atlantic world hardly a sign as yet of that direct espionage upon opinion and obliterates the mental life of the intelligent Italian or German or Russian today almost completely. One may still think what one likes, say what one likes and write what one likes. But nevertheless, there is already an increasing difficulty in getting bold, unorthodox views heard and read. Newspapers are afraid upon all sorts of minor counts. Publishers, with such valiant exceptions as the publishers of this matter, are morbidly discreet. They get notice D to avoid this or that particular topic. There are obscure boycotts and trade difficulties hindering the wide diffusion of general ideas in countless ways. I do not mean there is any sort of organized conspiracy to suppress discussion, but I do say that the press, the publishing and book-selling organizations in our free countries, provide a very ill-organized and inadequate machinery for the ventilation and distribution of thought. Publishers publish for nothing but safe profits. It would astound a bookseller to tell him he was part of the world's educational organization, or a publisher's traveler that he existed for any other purpose than to book maximum orders for bestsellers and earn a record commission. Letting the other stuff, the highbrow stuff and all that, go hang. They do not understand that they ought to put public service before gain. They have no inducement to do so and no pride in their function. Theirs is the morale of a profiteering world. Newspapers like to insert brave-looking articles of conventional liberalism speaking highly of peace and displaying a noble vagueness about its attainment. Now we are at war. They will publish the fiercest attacks upon the enemy, because such attacks are supposed to keep up the fighting spirit of the country. But any ideas that are really loudly and clearly revolutionary, they dare not circulate at all. Under these baffling conditions, there is no thorough discussion of the world outlook, whatever, anywhere. The democracies are only a shade better than the dictatorships in this respect. It is ridiculous to represent them as realms of light at issue with darkness. This great debate upon the reconstruction of the world is a thing more important and urgent than the war, and there exists no adequate media for the utterance and criticism and correction of any broad general convictions. There is a certain fruitless and unproductive spluttering of constructive ideas but there is little sense of sustained inquiry, few real interchanges, inadequate progress. Nothing is settled, nothing is dismissed as unsound, and nothing is won permanently. No one seems to hear what anyone else is saying. That is because there is no sense of an audience for these ideologists. There is no effective audience saying rudely and obstinately, What A has said seems important. Will B and C, instead of bombinating in the void, tell us exactly where and why they differ from A? And now we have got to the common truth of A, B, C, and D. Here is F saying something. Will he be so good as to correlate what he has to say with A, B, C, and D? But there is no such background of an intelligently observant and critical world audience in evidence. There are a few people here and there reading and thinking in disconnected fragments. This is all the thinking our world is doing in the face of planetary disaster. The universities, bless them, are in uniform or silent. We need to air our own minds. We need frank exchanges. If we are to achieve any common understanding, we need to work out a clear conception of the world order we would prefer to this present chaos. We need to dissolve or compromise upon our differences so that we may set our faces with assurance towards an attainable world peace. The air is full of the panaceas of half-wits, none listening to the others and most of them trying to silence the others in their impatience. Thousands of fools are ready to write us a complete prescription for our world troubles. Will people never realize their own ignorance and incompleteness? 
from which arise this absolute necessity for the plainest statement of the realities of the problem, for the most exhaustive and unsparing examination of differences of opinion, and for the most ruthless canvassing of every possibility, however unpalatable it may seem at first, of the situation? Before anything else, therefore, in this survey of the way to world peace, I put free speech and vigorous publication. It is the thing best worth fighting for. It is the essence of your personal honor. It is your duty as a world citizen to do what you can for that. You have not only to resist suppressions, you have to fight your way out of the fog. If you find your bookseller or news agent failing to distribute any type of publication whatever, even if you are in entire disagreement with the views of that publication, you should turn the weapon of the boycott upon the offender and find another bookseller or news agent for everything you read. The would-be world citizen should subscribe also to such organization as the National Council for Civil Liberties. He should use any advantage his position may give him to check suppression of free speech. And he should accustom himself to challenge nonsense politely but firmly and say fearlessly and as clearly as possible what is in his mind and to listen as fearlessly to whatever is said to him. So that he may know better either through reassurance or correction. To get together with other people to argue and discuss. To think and organize and then implement thought is the first duty of every reasonable man. This world of ours is going to pieces. It has to be reconstructed, and it can only be effectively reconstructed in the light. Only the free, clear, open mind can save us, and these difficulties and obstructions on our line of thought are as evil as children putting obstacles on a railway line or scattering nails on an automobile speed track. This great world debate must go on, and it must go on now. Now, while the guns are still thudding, is the time for thought. It is incredibly foolish to talk, as so many people do, of ending the war and then having a world conference to inaugurate a new age. So soon as the fighting stops the real world conference, the live discussion will stop too. The diplomats and politicians will assemble with an air of profound competence and close the doors upon the outer world and resume. Versailles, while the silenced world gapes and waits upon their mysteries. Chapter 3. Disruptive Forces And now let us come to the disruptive forces that have reduced that late 19th century dream of a powerful world patchwork of more and more civilized states linked by an ever-increasing financial and economic interdependence to complete incredibility, and so forced upon every intelligent mind the need to work out a new conception of the world that ought to be. It is supremely important that the nature of these disruptive forces should be clearly understood and kept in mind. To grasp them is to hold the clues of the world's present troubles. To forget about them, even for a moment, is to lose touch with essential reality and drift away into minor issues. The first group of these forces is what people are accustomed to speak of as the abolition of distance and the change of scale in human operations. This abolition of distance began rather more than a century ago, and its earlier effects were not disruptive at all. It knit together the spreading United States of America over distances that might otherwise have strained their solidarity to the breaking point and it enabled the sprawling British Empire to sustain contacts round the whole planet. The disruptive influence of the abolition of distance appeared only later. Let us be clear upon its essential significance. For what seemed like endless centuries, the swiftest means of locomotion had been the horse on the high road, the running man, the galley and the uncertain weather-ruled sailing ship. There was the Dutchman on skates, on skates on his canals, but that was an exceptional combination of speed and not for general application. The political, social, and imaginative life of man for all those centuries was adapted to these limiting conditions. They determined the distances to which marketable goods could conveniently be sent. 
the limits to which the ruler could send his orders and his soldiers, the bounds set to getting news, and indeed the whole scale of living. There could be very little real community feeling beyond the range of frequent intercourse. Human life fell naturally, therefore, into areas determined by the interplay between these limitations and such natural obstacles as seas and mountains. Such countries as France, England, Egypt, Japan appeared and reappeared in history like natural necessary things. And though there were such larger political efforts as the Roman Empire, they never attained an enduring unity. The Roman Empire held together like wet blotting paper. It was always falling to pieces. The older empires, beyond their national nuclei, were mere precarious tribute-levying powers. What I have already called the world patchwork of the great and little powers was therefore, under the old horse and foot and sailing ship conditions, almost as much a matter of natural necessity as the sizes of trees and animals. Within a century, all this has been changed, and we have still to face up to what that change means for us. First came steam, the steam railway, the steamship, and then in a quickening crescendo came the internal combustion engine, electrical traction, the motor car, the motor boat, the aeroplane, the transmission of power from central power stations, the telephone, the radio. I feel apologetic in reciting this well-known story. I do so in order to enforce the statement that all the areas that were the most convenient and efficient for the old, time-honored way of living became more and more inconveniently close and narrow for the new needs. This applied to every sort of administrative area, from municipalities and urban districts and the range of distributing businesses up to the sovereign states. They were, and for the most part they still are, too small for the new requirements, and far too close together. All over the social layout, this tightening up and squeezing together is an inconvenience. But when it comes to the areas of sovereign states, it becomes impossibly dangerous. It becomes an intolerable thing. Human life cannot go on, with the capitals of most of the civilized countries of the world within an hour's bombing range of their frontiers behind which attacks can be prepared and secret preparations made without any form of control. And yet, we are still tolerant and loyal to arrangements that seek to maintain this state of affairs and treat it as though nothing else were possible. The present war for and against Hitler and Stalin and Mr. Chamberlain and so forth does not even touch upon the essential problem of the abolition of distance. It may indeed destroy everything and still settle nothing. If one could wipe out all the issues of the present conflict, we should still be confronted with the essential riddle, which is the abolition of the boundaries of most existing sovereign states and their merger in some larger pacts. We have to do that if any supportable human life is to go on. Treaties and mutual guarantees are not enough. We have surely learnt enough about the value of treaties during the last half century to realize that. We have, because of the abolition of distance alone, to gather human affairs together under one common war-preventing control. But this abolition of distance is only one most vivid aspect of the change in the conditions of human life. Interwoven with that is a general change of scale in human operations. The past hundred years has been an age of invention and discovery beyond the achievements of the preceding three millennia. In a book I published eight years ago, the work, wealth, and happiness of mankind, I tried to summarize the conquest of power and substances that is still going on. There is more power expended in a modern city like Birmingham in a day than we need to keep the whole of the Elizabethan England going for a year. There's more destructive energy in a single tank than sufficed the army of William I for the conquest of England. Man is able now to produce or destroy on a scale beyond comparison greater than he could before this storm of invention began. And the consequence is the continual further dislocation of the orderly social life of our great-great-grandfathers. No trade, no profession is exempt. The old social routines and classifications have been, as people say, knocked silly. There's no sort of occupation, fisheries, farming, textile work, metalwork, mining, which is not suffering from constant readjustment 
to new methods and facilities. Our traditions of trade and distribution flounder after these changes. Skilled occupations disappear in the general liquefaction. The new power organizations are destroying the forests of the world at headlong speed, plowing great grazing areas into deserts, exhausting mineral resources, killing off whales, seals, and a multitude of rare and beautiful species, destroying the moral of every social type and devastating the planet. The institutions of the private appropriation of land and natural resources generally and of private enterprise for profit, which did produce a fairly tolerable, stable, and civilized social life for all but the most impoverished in Europe, America, and the East, for some centuries, have been expanded to a monstrous destructiveness by the new opportunities. The patient, nibbling, enterprising profit-seeker of the past, magnified and equipped now with the huge claws and teeth the change of scale has provided for him, has torn the old economic order to rags. Quite apart from war, our planet is being wasted and disorganized. Yet the process goes on, without any general control, more monstrously destructive than even the continually enhanced terrors of modern warfare. Now, it has to be made clear that these two things, the manifest necessity for some collective world control to eliminate warfare and the less generally admitted necessity for a collective control of the economic and biological life of mankind, are aspects of one and the same process. Of the two, the disorganization of the ordinary life which is going on, war or no war, is the graver and least reversible. Both arise out of the abolition of distance and the change of scale. They affect and modify each other. And unless their parallelism and interdependence are recognized, any projects for world federation or anything of the sort are doomed inevitably to frustration. That is where the League of Nations broke down completely. It was legal. It was political. It was devised by an ex-professor of the old-fashioned history assisted by a few politicians. It ignored the vast disorganization of human life by technical revolutions, big business and modern finance that was going on, of which the Great War itself was scarcely more than a byproduct. It was constituted as though nothing of that sort was occurring. This war storm, which is breaking upon us now, due to the continued fragmentation of human government among a patchwork of sovereign states, is only one aspect of the general need for a rational consolidation of human affairs. The independent sovereign state, with its perpetual war threat armed with the resources of modern mechanical frightfulness, is only the most blatant and terrifying aspect of that same want of a coherent general control that makes overgrown, independent, sovereign, private business organizations and combinations socially destructive. We should still be at the mercy of the Napoleons, of commerce, and the Attilas, of finance, that there was not a gun or a battleship or a tank or a military uniform in the world. We should still be sold up and dispossessed. Political federation, we have to realize, without a concurrent economic collectivization, is bound to fail. The task of the peacemaker who really desires peace in a new world involves not merely a political but a profound social revolution, profounder even than the revolution attempted by the communists in Russia. The Russian revolution failed not by its extremism but through the impatience, violence, and intolerance of its onset, through lack of foresight and intellectual insufficiency. The cosmopolitan revolution to a world collectivism which is the only alternative to chaos and degeneration before mankind, has to go much further than the Russian. It has to be more thorough and better conceived, and its achievement demands a, more, a much more heroic and more steadfast thrust. It serves no useful purpose to shut our eyes to the magnitude and intricacy of the task of making the world peace. These are the basic factors of the case. Chapter 4. Class War Now, here it is necessary to make a distinction which is far too frequently ignored. It means the suppression of go-as-you-please in social and economic affairs, just as much as in international affairs. 
It means the frank abolition of profit-seeking and every device by which human beings contrive to be parasitic on their fellow man. It is the practical realization of the brotherhood of man through a common control. It means all that, and it means no more than that. The necessary nature of that control, the way to attain it and to maintain it, have still to be discussed. The early forms of socialism were attempts to think out and try out collectivist systems. But with the advent of Marxism, the larger idea of collectivism became entangled with a smaller one, the perpetual conflict of people in any unregulated social system to get the better of one another. Throughout the ages, this has been going on. The rich, the powerful generally, the more intelligent and acquisitive have got away with things and sweated, oppressed, enslaved bought and frustrated the less intelligent, the less acquisitive, and the unwary. The haves in every generation have always got the better of the have-nots, and the have-nots have always resented the privations of their disadvantage. So it is, and so in the uncollectivized world it has always been. The bitter cry of the expropriated man echoes down the ages from ancient Egypt and the Hebrew prophets denouncing those who grind the faces of the poor. At times, the have-nots have been so uneducated, so helplessly distributed among their more successful fellows, that they have been incapable of social disturbance. But whenever such developments as plantation of factory labor, the accumulation of men in seaport towns, the disbanding of armies, famine, and so forth, brought together masses of men at the same disadvantage, their individual resentments flowed together and became a common resentment. The haves found themselves assailed by resentful, vindictive revolt. Let us note that these revolts of the have-nots throughout the ages have sometimes been very destructive, but that invariably they have failed to make any fundamental change in this old, old story of getting and not getting the upper hand. Sometimes the have-nots have frightened or otherwise moved the haves to more decent behavior. Often the have-nots have found a champion who is ridden to power on their wrongs. Then the ricks were burnt, or the chateau. The aristocrats were guillotined and their heads carried on exemplary pikes. Such storms passed, and when they passed, there, for all practical purposes, was the old order returning again. New people, but the old inequalities returning inevitably with only slight variations in appearance and phraseology under the condition of a non-collective social order. The point to note is that in the unplanned scramble of human life through the centuries of the horse and foot period, these incessantly recurring outbreaks of the losers against the winners have never once produced any permanent amelioration of the common lot or greatly changed the features of the human community. Not once. The have-nots have never produced the intelligence and the ability, and the haves have never produced the conscience to make a permanent alteration of the rules of the game. Slave revolts, peasant revolts, revolts of the proletariat have always been fits of rage, acute social fevers which have passed. The fact remains that history produces no reason for supposing that the have-nots, considered as a whole, have available any reserve of directive and administrative capacity and disinterested devotion, superior to that of the more successful classes. Morally, intellectually, there is no reason to suppose them better. Many potentially able people may miss education and opportunity. They may not be inherently inferior, but nevertheless, they are crippled and incapacitated and kept down. They are spoiled. Many specially gifted people may fail to make good in a jostling, competitive, acquisitive world and so fall into poverty and into the baffled, limited ways of living of the commonality. But they too are exceptions. The idea of a right-minded proletariat ready to take things over is a dream. As the collectivist idea has developed out of the original propositions of socialism, the more lucid thinkers have put this age-long bitterness of the haves and the have-nots into its proper place as part, as the most distressing part, but still only as part, of the vast wastage of human resources that their disorderly exploitation entailed. 
In the light of current events, they have come to realize more and more clearly that the need and possibility of arresting this waste by a worldwide collectivization is becoming continually more possible and at the same time imperative. They have had no delusions about the education and liberation that is necessary to gain that end. They have been moved less by moral impulses and sentimental pity and so forth, admirable but futile motives, as by the intense intellectual irritation of living in a foolish and destructive system. They are revolutionaries, not because the present way of living is a hard and tyrannous way of living, but because it is from the top to bottom exasperatingly stupid. But thrusting athwart the socialist movement towards collectivization and its research for some competent directive organization of the world's affairs came the clumsy initiative of Marxism with its class war dogma, which has done more to misdirect and sterilize human goodwill than any other misconception of reality that has ever stultified human effort. Marx saw the world from a study and through the hazes of a vast ambition. He swam in the current ideologies of his time, and so he shared the prevalent socialist drive towards collectivization. But while his sounder-minded contemporaries were studying means and ends, he jumped from a very imperfect understanding of the trades union movement in Britain to the wildest generalizations about the social process. He invented and antagonized two phantoms. One was the capitalist system, the other the worker. There never has been anything on earth that could properly be called a capitalist system. What was the matter with his world was manifestly its entire want of system. What the socialists were feeling their way towards was the discovery and establishment of a world system. The halves of our period were and are a fantastic miscellany of people, inheriting or getting their power and influence by the most various of the interbreeding social solidarity, even of a feudal aristocracy or an Indian caste. But Marx, looking rather into his inner consciousness than at any concrete reality, evolved that monster system on his right. Then over against it, still gazing into that vacuum, he discovered on the left the proletarians being steadily expropriated and becoming class conscious. They were just as endlessly various in reality as the people at the top of the scramble. In reality, but not in the mind of the communist seer. There they consolidated rapidly. So while other men toiled at this gigantic problem of collectivization, Marx found his almost childishly simple recipe. All you had to do was to tell the workers that they were being robbed and enslaved by this wicked capitalist system devised by the bourgeoisie. They need only unite. They had nothing to lose but their chains. The wicked capitalist system was to be overthrown with a certain vindictive liquidation of capitalists in general and the bourgeoisie in particular, and a millennium would ensue under a purely workers' control, which Lenin later on was to crystallize into a phrase of supra-theological mystery, the dictatorship of the proletariat. The proletarians need learn nothing, plan nothing. They were right and good by nature. They would just take over. The infinitely various envies, hatreds, and resentments of the have-nots were to fuse into a mighty creative drive. All virtue resided in them, all evil in those who had bettered them. One good thing there was in this new doctrine of the class war, it inculcated a much-needed brotherliness among the workers, but it was balanced by the organization of class hate. So the great propaganda of the class war, with these monstrous falsifications of manifest fact, went forth. Collectivization would not so much be organized as appear magically when the incubus of capitalism and all those erratingly well-to-do people were lifted off the great proletarian soul. Marx was a man incapable in money matters and much bothered by tradesmen's bills. Moreover, he cherished absurd pretensions to aristocracy. The consequence was that he romanced about the lovely life of the Middle Ages as if he were another belloc and concentrated his animus about the bourgeoisie, whom he made responsible for all those great disruptive forces in human society that we have considered. Lord Bacon, the Marquis of Worcester, Charles II, and the Royal Society 
People like Cavendish and Joule and Watt, for example, all became bourgeoisie in his inflamed imagination. During its reign of scarce a century, he wrote in the Communist Manifesto, the bourgeoisie has created more powerful, more stupendous forces of production than all preceding generations rolled into one. What earlier generations had the remotest inkling that such productive forces slumbered within the wombs of associated labor? The wombs of associated labor. Golly, what a phrase. The Industrial Revolution, which was a consequence of the Mechanical Revolution, is treated as the cause of it. Could facts be muddled more completely? And again, the bourgeois system is no longer able to cope with the abundance of wealth it creates. How does the bourgeoisie overcome these crises? On the one hand, by the compulsory annihilation of a quantity of the productive forces. On the other, by the conquest of new markets and the more thorough exploitation of old ones. With what results? The results are that the way is paved for more widespread and more disastrous crises, and that the capacity for averting such crises is lessened. The weapons. Weapons. How that sedentary gentleman in this vast beard adored military images with which the bourgeoisie overthrew feudalism, are now being turned against the bourgeoisie itself. But the bourgeoisie had not only forged the weapons that will slay it, but it also engendered the men who will use these weapons, the modern workers, the proletarians. And so here they are, hammer and sickle in hand, chest stuck out, proud, magnificent, commanding in the manifesto. But go and look for them yourself in the streets. Go and look at them in Russia. Even for 1848, this is not intelligent social analysis. It is the outpouring of a man with a bee in his bonnet, the hated bourgeoisie, a man with a certain vision, uncritical of his own subconscious prejudices. But shrewd enough to realize how great a driving force is hate and the inferiority complex. Shrewd enough to use hate and bitter enough to hate. Let anyone read over that communist manifesto and consider who might have shared the hate or even had God at all if Marx had not been the son of a rabbi. Read Jews for Bourgeoisie, and the manifesto is pure Nazi teaching of the 1933-38 vintage. Stripped down to its core in this fashion, the primary falsity of the Marxist assumption is evident. But it is one of the queer common weakness of the human mind to be uncritical of primary assumptions and to smother up any inquiry into their soundness and secondary elaboration and technicalities and conventional formula. Most of our systems of belief rest upon rotten foundations, and generally these foundations are made sacred to preserve them from attack. They become dogmas and a sort of holy of holies. It is shockingly uncivil to say, but that is nonsense. The defenders of all the dogmatic religions fly into rage and indignation when one touches on the absurdity of their foundations. Especially if one laughs. That is blasphemy. This avoidance of fundamental criticism is one of the greatest dangers to any general human understanding. Marxism is no exception to the universal tendency. The capitalist system has to be a real system, the bourgeoisie an organized conspiracy against the workers, and every human conflict everywhere has to be an aspect of the class war, or they cannot talk to you, they will not listen to you. Never once has there been an attempt to answer the plain things I have been saying about them for a third of a century. Anything not in their language flows off their minds like water off a duck's back. Even Lenin by far the subtlest mind in the communist story, has not escaped this pitfall. And when I talked to him in Moscow in 1920, he seemed quite unable to realize that the violent conflict going on in Ireland between the Catholic nationalists and the Protestant garrison was not his sacred insurrection of the proletariat in full blast. Today, there is quite a number of writers, and among them, there are men of science who ought to think better solemnly elaborating on a pseudo-philosophy of science and society. 
upon the deeply buried but entirely nonsensical foundations laid by Marx. Month by month, the industrious left book club pours a new volume over the minds of its devotees to sustain their mental habits and pickle them against the septic influence of unorthodox literature. The party index of forbidden books will no doubt follow. Distinguished professors with solemn delight in their own remarkable ingenuity lecture and discourse and even produce serious-looking volumes upon the superiority of Marxist physics and Marxist research to the unbranded activities of the human mind. One tries not to be rude to them, but it is hard to believe they are not deliberately playing the fool with their brains. Or have they a feeling that revolutionary communism is ahead? And are they doing their best to rationalize it with an eye to those red days to come? See Hogben's Dangerous Thoughts. Here I cannot pursue in any detail the story of the rise and corruption of Marxism in Russia. It confirms in every particular my contention that the class war idea is an entanglement and perversion of the world drive towards a world collectivism, a wasting disease of cosmopolitan socialism. It has followed in its general outline the common history of every revolt of the have-nots since history began. Russia and the shadows displayed an immense inefficiency and sank slowly to Russia in the dark. Its galaxy of incompetent foremen, managers, organizers, and so forth developed the most complicated system of self-protection against criticism. They sabotaged one another. They intrigued against one another. You can read the quintessence of the thing in little pages in search of Soviet gold. And like every other have-not revolt since the dawn of history, hero worship took possession of the insurgent masses. The inevitable champion appeared. They escaped from the Tsar, and in 20 years they are worshipping Stalin, originally a fairly honest, unoriginal, ambitious revolutionary, driven to self-defensive cruelty and inflated by flattery to his present quasi-divine autocracy. The cycle completes itself, and we see that, like every other merely insurrectionary revolution, nothing has changed. A lot of people have been liquidated, and a lot of other people have replaced them, and Russia seems returning back to the point at which it started, to a patriotic absolutism of doubtful efficiency and vague, incalculable aims. Stalin, I believe, is honest and benevolent in intention. He believes in collectivism simply and plainly. He is still under the impression that he is making a good thing of Russia and of the countries within her sphere of influence, and he is self-righteously impatient of criticism or opposition. His successor may not have the same disinterestedness. But I've written enough to make it clear why we have to disassociate collectivization altogether from the class war in our minds. Let us waste no more time on the spectacle of the Marxist putting the cart in front of the horse and tying himself up with the harness. We have to put all this proletarian distortion of the case out of our minds and start afresh upon the problem of how to realize the new and unprecedented possibilities of world collectivization that have opened up out upon the world in the past hundred years. That is a new story, an entirely different story. We human beings are facing gigantic forces that will either destroy our species altogether or lift it to an altogether unprecedented level of power and well-being. These forces have to be controlled or we shall be annihilated. But completely controlled, they can abolish slavery by the one sure means of making these things unnecessary. Class war communism has its opportunity to realize all this, and it has failed to make good. So far, it has only replaced one autocratic Russia by another. Russia, like all the rest of the world, is still facing the problem of the competent government of a collective system. She has not solved it. The dictatorship of the proletariat has failed us. We have to look for possibilities of control in other directions. Are they to be found? Note. A friendly advisor reading the passage on page 47 protests against the wombs of associated labor. As a mistranslation of the original German of the manifesto, I took it from the translation of Professor 
Hirendranath Mukherjee, an, an Indian student's journal, Sriharsha, which happened to be at my desk. But my advisor produces Lily G. Atkin and Frank C. Budgen in a Glasgow socialist labor press publication who gave it as the lap of social labor, which is more refined but pure nonsense. The German word is Schoss, and in its widest sense, it means the whole productive maternal outfit from bosom to knees, and here quite definitely the womb. The French translation gives Sienne, which at first glance seems to carry gentility to an even higher level. But as you can say in French, that an expected mother carries her child in her sien, I think Professor Mukherjee has it. Thousands of reverent young communists must have read that lap without observing its absurdity. Marx is trying to make out that the increase of productive efficiency was due to association and factories. A better phrase to express his wrong-headed intention would have been the coordinated operations of workers massed in factories. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.